0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. As Pastor Brad noted last week, we're approaching the Christmas season by looking at Colossians, which has some of the most worshipful, Jesus-focused contents in all of the New Testament. And this is a book that uh, we don't know a whole lot about the church at Colossae. We know that Paul didn't find it. It was a small place, but we also know that this letter had uh, huge significance. It was passed among the churches, and Paul wrote it from uh, being in prison. But this is a place where um, he comes alongside and he addresses issues that are going on in the life of people just like you who are sitting in the pew who are facing, facing some uh, hardships of what to believe, and when life was pressing against them. In fact, some of you may find yourself in ruts, and I wrote uh, in the email about the ruts that we find ourselves in. In fact, maybe even some of your Christmas traditions bring you great comfort, but also have a a sense of a rut. We do the same thing at the same time every week, and you find yourself... uh, either dreading those things, or uh, maybe they bring you great comfort. But I'm firmly convinced that there are many people, maybe even you, who sit here today, that the rut you find yourself in is one that feels a little bit like this. Get up, survive, go back to bed. Get up, survive, Fall in the bed. And if that is you, I want you to know there's no shame in that. And I want you to know that you're not alone. And I want you to understand that God's word does have a word for us as we experience those things in our life. So if you have your Bible, look with me at chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. We're going to pick up the reading in verse 24 As Paul instructed, was trying to encourage them. He says this, from the ESV, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister to the stewardship from God that's given to me. For you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And then he tells us a little bit more about that mystery. He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. Now you and I are Gentiles, unless you come from Jewish descent. We were outside, the message comes to people outside the Jewish people. He says, to them God may, chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is this. Here it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. As I said, you may find yourself in that rut. And if you're in that rut, There's answers. You say, well, how did I get here? It's easy to get there. It's easy for any of us, no matter how faithful you might be as a follower of Jesus Christ, you find yourself in ruts because as life presses against us, we find pain. In fact, this is a book... You know, the strange thing about letters like this is studied from a broad perspective as I studied the letter this week. I noticed something I'd never seen before. This is a a book that actually could almost be read in reverse. It starts with Paul saying, hey, I'm in prison writing this to you. And he backs up from there and he encourages believers to understand a few key things. One of those things is this. You have purpose going on in your life. And you're in a culture that presses against that purpose. Paul understood that there were arguments that were going to occur. In fact, he refers to that in chapter 2. If you have your Bible, look, I'll show you what he's talking about. Chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said this, I say this, and what he's What he's saying there is everything he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this so that you may not be deluded with plausible arguments. Every day, without your knowledge, plausible arguments are floating about you. In fact, every ancient civilization, from Cherokee, Indians... To Taos monks in China believed this. They believed that life was circular. And you may not even know or realize this, but its influence is your life today. It kind of works this way. Life begins in beginning in birth. You grow and progress, but it ends in death. And you go right back to the earth. There's nothing new under the sun. Greek culture taught that this cycle, this circle, was most profoundly seen in, like in the Iliad, where Odysseus leaves home, and in the Odyssey, it ends with Odysseus returning home. Life goes full circle. Mark Ross, who is sitting in this service today, we had a conversation about this earlier this week. He says, in our modern culture, that cycle, especially among our young people, it's like it's turning like this versus like this. He's just constantly turning. But this circle, according to Thomas Cahill, is a cycle of despair. Empires rise to glory, then they fall to ashes. And any serious Greek play always ends in tragedy. Why? Because in the best of time, suffering is waiting just around in the corner. It haunts every celebration. Walt Disney knew that Americans didn't have much of a stomach for that. So he took that and he just kind of altered it a little bit. Lion King, Circle of Life. You know the song where things start out good and they go bad, but they end up good again, and all of us live happily ever after. And we love those stories. But the true Greek philosophy is paganism. And paganism is not optimistic. It knows that the circle of life is naive. What good does it know, does it do to know that my decaying body just becomes part of the planet? Once I die, I'm done. Some have said, even my brother. Who recently passed. Believe this. You exist until the last time your name is uttered. And who among us in this room. Could tell your neighbor the name of your great grandfather. And when was he the last topic of your conversation. For many of us it's no wonder. That life has that sense of despair. That sense of depression, why even among Christians, we medicate. We know that geography often defines life for many of us. Geography that starts in the same place and ends in the same place. In fact, for many of you, like me, maybe, your first breath will occur in a hospital and your last breath will occur in a hospital. Warren Wiersbe, as he approached this text, he understood that the believer in Colossae, who had probably been a believer for less than five years, that believer needed to understand that you needed to come to the right conclusion because wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. But right doctrine leads to right living. And Paul wanted the Christians to get their thinking right. That's why he addresses it in this way. Life is not a circle. In fact, much of biblical Christianity on them as well as us is lost in the culture in which we live. I made the mistake in first service saying, how in the world did Satan replace Jesus? What I meant to say is how did... Santa replaced Jesus, (laughs) all right? So I'll give your children nightmares as well, all right? Black Friday, why is it called that? Why do we key up ourselves for that? And on and on we go. Can you imagine your life, if I asked you to picture it, is that your life consists of painting a wall, all of us painting A wall, a singular wall. Can you imagine coming to the end of your life and suddenly it dawns on you. I'm painting the wrong wall. And I've been doing it my whole life. And that's often what we find. All the years we paint the wrong wall. We contextualize and domesticate the message of Christ. And believers, well-meaning ones, find themselves in a rut and they don't quite know how to get out of it. Colossians chapter 1, I've put in your bulletin the New Living Translation. I want to call your attention to it just for a, a moment, the passage that we read from the ESV. And I have bold and italic some words. Just notice how they jump out at you. Paul says, I'm glad when I suffer. He says, "I'm participating, and there it is, sufferings of Christ." He talks about this responsibility that's been given him about proclaiming his entire message. And then in verse 27, he refers to riches and glory of Christ, which are for you. He wants them to know there's this riches and glory. and this secret. and this secret is not a mysticism but a profound difference from religion. And that is this, that Christ lives in you. That's the secret. You will share his glory for Christ lives in you. And it brings assurance and it brings hope. So the question begs and the question that we're going to answer this morning is this. What can you, what should you expect if you trust Christ? Now, some of you may come to this room this day. You know, you think you know a lot about Christianity. But Christianity for you has been impacted by the culture in which you live. There's no shame in that. It's just reality. It's what you beg. It's a bag of rocks you carry. But what can you really expect from a biblical worldview when you trust Christ and he lives in you? I want you to see and understand that the Christian life is not a set of beliefs outside of you. And that's often how it's treated. But it's the very presence of Jesus within you. Christianity is more than propositional claims of mental assent. But the very living presence of Jesus Christ so that life is viewed differently than the world around you. You really were meant to live differently. You say, well, Brian, I don't want to live differently. Well, I would beg you to consider this. If life presses on you and you're hurting, the question would be, how's that working out? The claim of Christ on our life gives us something That you need to understand as you approach the Christmas season, as you look at what Jesus offers. Understand this, your life has eternal purpose. Your life is not just a circle where you come out of the womb, dig out for your life the best that you can, and hopefully make an impact and die. And the last time your name is uttered, you're done. Your life has eternal purpose. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verses 14 and following in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, "You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. And then in verse 16, he gave you purpose. He says, In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You were designed expressly to give glory to God. It is the highest good. It is the most amazing pursuit. You've been reborn, if you've trusted Christ, for a new life. And double negatives aside, please bear with me. You cannot dream a dream that God is not better. You cannot experience a job, a salary, a travel, a destination, an event where God does not hold something better. He is the only forever perfect, nothing higher, nothing better, more glorious being, and the ultimate goal of all of life. But you'll lose it if you don't focus yourself, that you have eternal purpose. Your life is meant to give glory to God and have everlasting meaning. The pagan worldview that we live in impacts us. That low-level depression that you feel, it's what you live in. We medicate we pursue things. Even believers do. We want something new to either numb, to distract, or create illusion of this. I'm okay and you're okay. In fact, one of the most popular self-help books, I think it was Wayne Dyer that wrote it. I'm okay, you're okay. That delusion. However, doesn't the very presence of locks on your doors... And security checkpoints that you pass through, divorce at unbelievable alarming rates, the abandonment of children, doesn't it all just simply indicate that we really are not okay? We feel lost in plain sight. And the people in Colossae, just like the people in Florence, were subject to the very same thing. They got distracted from truth, and they sought a magic formula. And in those days, it was mostly Gnosticism, especially pressing on them, where the body, what happened in the body, was somehow bad, and they had to draw some kind of conclusion that there was this mystical event, and there had to be something more. There has to be more. There's got to be more than Jesus. There's got to be. Right? But the message of the cross is that he's everything. Jesus is the victor over death. He's the victor over your sin. He is the resurrected Savior who does not want you to believe just things about him, but calls you to surrender, listen, surrender the throne of your life to him. And the secret is this, Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. See, your heart from a biblical perspective is not a blood pump, but the very center of your motivation. It is the director of your very existence. And what you value indicates something about who rules you. It's either you and what you dig out, or there is another who rules the throne of your life. We all want certain things. There's no shame in that. The desire for joy, we're hardwired for it. A desire for hope and a sense of meaning. And for some, that 15 minutes of fame has this strange allure. But we live with the little thought of the reality is that we're all eventually going to die. And so we look for things... In the here and now to solve the issues. But Jesus lived with singular purpose. He lived to glorify God. The scripture says in the book of Hebrews look to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That singular purpose does not insulate you from suffering, but gives you fresh look on it. Jesus looked forward, facing forward, with the hope and understanding that his Father was working out a good and wise plan. And the suffering that you're experiencing today in your life, it is not meaningless. For those of you who have not trusted Christ, that could be... God is sending a message to awaken your heart that there's more. There's so much more. See, the hope of glory, this hope is not a word of, oh, maybe, I hope things just work out. No, from a biblical perspective, hope means full assurance that God is sovereignly in control and not a breath in your life is by chance. God is at work. Your life is more about just the now, it includes eternity. And this glory is about something that God holds, but our eyes have been so blinded, we don't even understand what glory even looks like express radiant light and joy. It was C.S. Lewis that says, we've turned our back on the sun and we've fallen in love with our shadow. You have purpose when you follow Christ. But make no mistake about it, Paul says something in this passage that we're not real comfortable with and we like to just skip over it when we read it. He says you're going to face problems Look at verse 24. It's how he leads off in this section. He says, "I rejoice in my sufferings." Now let me let, let me pause here for a second. I know there's people sitting in this room that're suffering. And the idea of suffering and rejoicing is like me saying I like eggs. I don't like eggs. In my household, my family knows I call them pre-birds. I don't like them. I'm sorry to do that to you, but it was my opportunity. All right? But when Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering, go, what? Let's move on down through the passage. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I rejoice in my suffering. Paul's perspective is... Is to rejoice. Are you like me? When when problems hit your life. I go into fix it mode. Problems are something to avoid. They are to be fixed. What's the matter with Paul? Paul understood that suffering is a way of love. In fact, if you move toward the suffering. You move as Jesus moved. The way of love is often the way of the cross. It is the surrendering of your life. See, the babe in the manger, which gives us the warm and the fuzzies. If we pause, we understand that the straw will not always cushion, nor will the swaddling claws always protect him. He's going to be stripped. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be rejected. We want to be like Jesus. We want to know the exaltation. We want to know the victory. We just don't want any cross. No cross. Pain is to be avoided at all cost. We're the people that we look at problems and we go, what is wrong? Why is God doing this? Have you ever noticed that when things are going really well, we're not going, well, that's God in this. That's God in that. It's when things go bad. The assumption is that if God was good, He would permit. He wouldn't. He would not permit tragedy. We don't ever lay it at our feet. We don't lay it at the sinfulness of human beings of why we have locks on doors. What we want is a nice domesticated God that asks nothing of us because everything that we want, what I want is probably the same thing you want. I want Santa Claus. I don't want God. But the message of rescue, the message of redemption is one where the king of glory, folks, suffers. The cross is not a place that Jesus passed just right through. The cross is a place of suffering. It's a place where he bore your shame. You and I are going to suffer too. Our culture loves to exalt self. But if you're a true follower of Christ, you can expect it's coming. You're going to suffer. There's things you're going to be cut off from. And this suffering raises a key theological issue in this passage. What is this suffering that Paul refers to that fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is that? Filling up what is lacking. Well, this this word... Antanoplero, the Greek word is a, a word that occurs one time in the New Testament, only once, right here. And it has generated thousands of pages and many, many hours of debate among believers. About this, And one of the conclusions was this. Well, Jesus didn't suffer enough, so we have to suffer to make up for what Jesus didn't do. And i got a word for that. That's hogwash. That is not the teaching of the New Testament. That's not even the teaching of this book. I don't know how scholars, if they could call themselves, that could come to that conclusion. In fact, what we see here... In chapter 2, I want you to see, jump down with me. There's an important word picture here. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses, meaning you were separated. Dead means separated from life. In the middle part of verse 13, he says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us, With its legal demands, this he set aside. He nailed it to the cross. Now look at verse 15. There's a word picture in verse 15 that many of you may not know. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What that means is this. It was not lost on the Colossian believer. This is the picture of the conquering Roman army who would bring rulers that they conquered into the city. And as they marched through the city, would strip them and put them to open shame. Think right now of your lowest point in the decisions that you make. Think of the sin that you cannot forget. The shame that haunts you. That is what Jesus did With your shame. He took it in the city and he stripped it from you and he placed it in open shame and he bore it in his body. So don't ever tell me that the sufferings we experience need to make up for something. What this is is this the believer who's committed to Christ, who walks in the culture that they live for the gospel. And as Jesus lives in you, you're going to suffer too. And it fills the glories of heaven. And as you suffer, it conforms you to the image of Jesus. It makes you different. See, if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus knew the book of Proverbs said this, A good name is to be chosen above great riches. We all would love a good name. We value it. But look at what the Pharisees said about Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. They said, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Not exactly a good name. The rejection, the ridicule, the out of place that you feel, the sacrifices that you make are not that you're Out of order, but actually if you trust Christ, you're just normal. If you're not experiencing the good life now, somehow when you believe that we've done something wrong, the reality is is that you may just be experiencing very much what Jesus experienced. Do you move towards suffering? Do you? The cross calls you to sacrifice to move toward it. And every day you're going to make a choice. Are you going to exalt yourself? You're going to exalt Christ. What's going to define you? See, I'm really good. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at des- domesticating Christianity. But Paul was not have any of that. I want it nice and clean. I want it without crosses and I want it without shame and without hardship. But if you follow Christ, If you've not suffered, you will. If you're a true follower of Christ, you can expect it. and There's nothing wrong with you. Are you going to have the courage to stand, the confidence to speak? Will you? And you know this, you can not only have purpose. Not only are you going to experience the problems, but you can experience peace and joy as you go through it. In fact, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, I don't want you to miss this. He says, even when you suffer. Now this should be clearly evident to any thinking believer. When you commit your life to Christ, your world begins to narrow. Young people who sit in this room. We don't talk about this a lot, but I want you to understand something. You want you wonder what's wrong with you. Why you can't find that mate. Why you can't find that pick of the litter you've chosen to follow Jesus and as you do your world narrows the reason why that promotion has not come through may be very much because your co-workers your supervisors look at you and they know that you will not walk the fine line between profit and following Christ you're going to follow Christ You're going to put people before policies. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to take a stand. And when you are around people who do not follow Christ, you stick out. That's not your view to stick out to cause shame to anyone else. But just that the devotion to Christ is evident in your life. Your world begins to narrow What about that mate that does not come? What about that promotion, that break? The things that you always wanted. The question that begs is, are you willing to submit? And Christ asks you, will you sit on the throne of your life or will you allow me to run your life? You may say, Brian, let's be honest, I can't imagine that. What about my rights? What about me? I would get lost if I married Someone who is a follower of Jesus, and, and they suddenly don't always act right. I would get lost. I, 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 I can't stand to get abused. No one looks out for me but me. This is where, this is where we are wrong. That's a teaching of the culture. It's not a teaching of Scripture. Jesus taught the way you find your life is what? You lose it. It's an upside-down kingdom. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, don't miss it, deny himself. Deny sitting on the throne of your life all the time, calling all the shots. For whoever would lose his life will what? Find it. And some of you wondering what is the meaning of life, why are things not working out, is God is narrowing your world to show you that the life you really always wanted is found in Him and nowhere else. In fact, Paul knew it. He said the kingdom of God, that's the ruler of God, rulership of God, is not a matter of eating and drinking. He's not talking about going out to a fine dinner and getting drunk. He's talking about just daily life. It's not the, he said it's not the daily grind. It's not the rut. It's not the eating and drinking. But righteousness and peace and joy. And the Holy Spirit. When Christ is on the scene there's joy. Even when you suffer. Even when you sacrifice. And when you surrender to the king. William Knight said it as good as any modern man. He said joy is the flag that flies high from the castle of my heart. For the king is in residence there. Do you know that? Do you know what that means? There certainly was a time in my life where joy did not exemplify me in any way. And I want you to listen to me. Please hear this. This was after I called myself a believer. After I called myself a follower of Jesus Christ. Years I liked joy. My family took the brunt of it. My daughter sitting in this service, I remember many days as a child. Many days, not once or twice. She would look at me and she says, Daddy, what's wrong? You don't seem very happy. And I'd make an excuse, but the truth is I wasn't happy. Joy escaped me. My life up to that point, I didn't come from a wealthy home. I was convinced somehow in my teens, though, that money would bring me joy because it would mean that I accomplished. And by the time I was 35 years old, I made more than three times that my father had ever made. And I don't tell you that to brag or say anything. Some of you may know this as well. I'm just telling you the facts But joy escaped me. But my dad was full of joy. What did he know that I didn't know? And it was probably seen as as good as any day. And one March day many years ago, I went to the bank with a personal handwritten check from the owner of the company I worked for. For going above and beyond for things. And... That check had several digits on it, and I stood in front of a teller, and I handed it across, and I went that day in a ball cap and sweats, and she looked back at me, and she said, can you wait here just for a second? And she went and got the bank manager, and they came, came around. He looked at me. He said, sir, can I see some ID? I gave him my ID, and I was beginning to stand something's up here. So he asked me to come into his office. He closed the door and he literally said to me, "Where did you get this check?" I told him. He said, "Okay. So I'm gonna we'll deposit it, but I want you to understand this is not normal, and there's going to be a hold on this check." Now this is where the story gets interesting. This is where the story has a teaching point. I did not leave that bank that day. So thankful for all that God had provided. You know how I left that bank that day? Upset. That what was rightfully mine was not acknowledged. That's called pride, folks. And I had it in spades. There was no joy in my journey. There was no correct gauge on my life. Many, many days. Let me just say it the way it was. I messed up in the way I was thinking. And I've been down, I've been up here. I've been every place in between, and I will probably see those places again. But I've learned this. When Christ is rightly positioned on the throne of life, on the life that he purchased, joy floods in. Paul understood it. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you. Whom you have from God. And you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. You were meant to glorify God. You're going to face problems. And if joy escapes you. I would ask you to consider. Are you in a battle with God. For the throne of your life. Who's going to run it. See. See. There's nothing in the Christmas story that's better illustrative of this. That there are wise men, smart men, intelligent men, men of means who travel with gifts and show up. And they are the PhDs of their day. And what are they doing? They are falling down and worshiping. And joy flooded over them. Is that evident in your life? Is your life evident of that? You say, well, Brian, I'm, I'm not sure. How does that work? Well, in context of, of this teaching, and when Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he is pointing to a very specific thing. That your life is not circular. Your life is not starting digging as much as you can and at the end of dying and going back in the earth. He is saying that your life is actually more like a J. Where you're starting at the top of the little flip. And you begin and you move through life and you die. But you head where? Up out of the grave. That Christ in you is the hope of glory. In fact, Paul, this was such a part of his argument. In 1 Corinthians 15... If you are a believer, if you have no religious background, whatever you may be, I hope you know this. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Paul says this. If we hope in Christ only in this life, we're all men to be pitied. He's saying this. "If, If following Jesus is just about the here and now, it's a joke. It is a huge joke that Christianity is a joke if Jesus is not raised. But if Jesus is raised, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how life is pressing against you, it is not the final curtain call for you. Life is so much more. You are built for eternity. And the, the, the Christ that came out of the grave comes out of the grave in you. With you. Glory awaits you. Your life is not a vapor. You will resurrect as the resurrected king resurrected in glory, in shining splendor to give honor to him. And no matter what's going on in your life right now, Paul wanted your focus to understand that whatever's going on, the suffering, the shame, The rejection. The narrowing of your life. There's a secret. It's Christ in you. And he's in you. And he can live through you wherever you are right now. And he knows how to lead you through whatever you're facing. For some of us. We don't really understand what that means. Because we've so domesticated our faith. Stanford Kelly was a missionary to Haiti. I heard the story about a thanks and a Thanksgiving festival that they were having, where the people who attended the church were invited to bring a love offering. Well, an envelope came that was opened, and it was from a man by the name of Edmund, a Haitian man, and it contained thirteen dollars cash. And for you and I, that may not seem like a lot, but at that time, it was about three months worth of income. Equivalent in today's dollars, about $18,000 cash. Stanford said he looked around for Edmund that day, but he could not see him. He was dumbfounded. And he went and he found him in the village later, and he pressed him for an explanation where did the money come from? Thank you. What? What's going on? How did you do this? He found out that Edmund had sold his horse in order to give the $13 to God and for the gospel. But why hadn't he come to the festival? Edmund hesitated, but he, he finally gave an answer. Finally, Edmund said, I didn't have a shirt to wear. When I asked Brad to come, Ask our worship team, when Christ lives in you, it compels you to do things that you would not normally do. To focus yourself in ways that you would not normally focus. To see life from a backdrop, a perspective that your life is not your own. And the frustration that goes on within is often because you're battling for the throne room. You're battling for for whom will you live? Will you live your life in a circular? you live your life looking as a J. Many of us would just prefer not think about all those things. We'd rather just go to Fiji. I've always wanted to go to Fiji. I didn't know much about Fiji until I read a little bit about James Calvert. James Calvert lived in the 1800s. Fiji was overrun with cannibals. And Calvert went there as a missionary to the cannibals. As they arrived near the island, the ship captain looked at him and they said to him, You're going to lose your life and the life of those that came with you if you go among those savages. To which Calvert replied, We died before we came here. Christmas is a mysterious thing. We can get lost in this culture, but it truly is mysterious. Christmas is a mysterious thing. It's more than paper and packages tied up in string. It's more than a babe in a manger, a story that we tell. It's Jesus, the living Savior, who rescues from hell.